you don't even need to have a history of some kind of physically related PTSD necessarily behind this. But I've heard from a lot of folks who've been in relationships in the past where it's like, I touch my partner and they immediately want to escalate it to sex. Mm. And so Mm. because of that, I end up avoiding touch at all of a partner unless I want to have sex. And it's very much a binary of either I'm going to touch you because I want to have sex or, or I'm not because there's no in between. Wow. Yeah. 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 And then feeling like I don't want that pressure to have to do that right now. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about how to have a good relationship after you've been in a bad relationship, or even several bad relationships. We'll be talking about how PTSD, as well as other past baggage, can show up in your current relationships, how otherwise healthy behavior can even feel unsettling or confusing if you're used to toxic relationships, and some actionable takeaways for recovering from trauma and building healthier relationships. Yeah, so we're doing this episode because a while back, a listener reached out wondering just specifically if we had any episodes addressing how to have a good relationship even after having a difficult relationship history or a traumatic relationship history. Um, Particularly, they were asking about navigating healthy relationships when you have a history of being abused. or specifically navigating healthy relationships when your particular flavor of neurodivergence is PTSD as a result of past unhealthy or abusive relationships. So that's what we're going to get into today. I wanted to not just focus on specifically abuse or specifically PTSD. We are going to touch on those things, but I wanted to widen the scope a little bit because I think this is something that can affect a lot of folks even if you don't have PTSD, even if you don't have a history of being abused in a relationship, it's very easy for all of us to carry some sort of baggage from a past relationship into our current relationships. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. First of all, what do we even mean when we say a bad relationship? There's a lot of things out there that might seem like a bad relationship some of which we're going to talk about today. Here's a list of some things that are included, but not limited to things like abuse or incompatibility, extreme codependence, relationships that have very high conflict levels or very high volatility levels, relationships where dishonesty is kind of a cornerstone, or inequality is a cornerstone that may mean things like financial inequality, or variety of other things, power imbalances, if that's not something that you agree to within the relationship, things like that. Right. I mean, a part of that is also imbalanced decision-making. We're kind of from that inequality of one person being the one who makes all the decisions and the other not having that power. Um, along with that could be pressure or coercion to to do certain things or to behave certain ways or to, you know, terminate other friendships or have different types of other relationships. 
could also just be neglect of just not being, you know, not having someone paying attention to you, um, not having your needs being met or having someone caring about your desires or your wants at all. Um, could be something like your boundaries constantly being pushed or ignored or someone trying to challenge you on that in a context where it's difficult for you to uphold your own boundaries and protect yourself. Or it could have also been even a bad caretaker relationship from your family of origin or someone else along the way who's kind of been in that caretaker role for you. Yeah. So to clarify that this doesn't just mean, oh, I had a bad romantic relationship and then that affects my future good romantic relationships, this could be going all the way back to, again, family relationships or parental relationships. So we also have to clarify what we mean by a good relationship or a healthy relationship. And of course, there's going to be many, many different definitions to this, but these are the things that we're focusing on when we when we talk about that. So for us, a good relationship is one that's communicative, that's honest, where there's mutual trust, mutual respect, mutual support for each other, a relationship where there's a sense of equity or equality, or at least conscious efforts towards equity and equality and balance. Also a relationship where there is shared decision-making or shared decision-making power, where both of you are able to influence each other and accept influence from each other. Of course, also a relationship that is based in consent and a relationship where ideally you are sharing similar values. Now, like Dedeker mentioned at the beginning, we're going to talk a little bit about how PTSD shows up in relationships, but also what other behaviors or feelings might show up in a relationship as a result of negative experiences in past relationships that might not necessarily be PTSD related. So in general, PTSD symptoms may show up if you've been in a super traumatic relationship. Things like flashbacks, like nightmares, intrusive thoughts, severe reactions to something happening, uh, avoidance or depression or other types of self-destructive behavior. Additionally, you may expect the worst or, you know, run everything that occurs through a negative filter, sort of have the opposite of rose-colored glasses on. Yeah. So, I mean, this applies to so many behaviors that can show up when you're used to being in a bad relationship, which, you know, not trusting the person. Um, just, yeah, it is just that expecting the worst, expecting that it's not going to work out. They're not going to take care of me. You know, I can't trust them. I can't rely on them, you know, and the, this may be based on a script that you've been so used to running in order to protect yourself in these past relationships that were not so great. You may have emotional or physical reactions that are a bit out of proportion to what triggered them. It may be a very intense emotional reaction, whereas the thing that caused it, it, it there may be a disconnect there. It may not actually deserve that large of an intense reaction. Also, you may have things like self-doubt or doubt of the other person. Things like lack of trust. We talked about trust in a previous episode, in a very recent episode. If you tend to have like extreme lack of trust just in general, that might show up in your relationships because of negative past experiences. Another example of how this can show up is in self-doubt or doubt of the other person. Kind of related to trust, which we've talked about a little bit before and we talked about last week. Um, but that not just a lack of trust, but also 
like this doubt of like, I don't even know if I can believe what, what I'm seeing, right? Both the self-doubt and the doubt of the other person can, can really show up. Yeah, I've heard some people talking about how sometimes there can be almost like a self-gaslighting that mm. happens in relationship right. where um, maybe you have been gaslit a bunch in a previous relationship or maybe you've just been hurt a lot. And so that it becomes really hard to feel like, can I even trust my perception of someone? Because last time I thought they were a good person in the past relationship and then ended up being horrible and I got really hurt. And so if my... Mm. brain is giving me the same message of, ooh, this seems like a good person. Can I really trust that? Because I've made such poor choices in the past. Yeah, being right. unaware of just reality. Been, yeah, because you were high on this wave of NRE and totally mm. missing out on all these red flags. And so then you don't trust yourself afterward to recognize that or, you know, any number of things. I will say I was looking through some old journals of mine recently from a couple of years ago, probably the last time that I was in NRE. And it was fascinating to read how much self-doubt I had huh? because mm. the fact that I was an NRE and I was aware of it and I was just so mm. like, oh my God, no, like this is going to be bad. This is going to be terrible. Like I'm probably not making the right choice. You know, like, oh, I don't know if I can trust this. Oh, this seems I'm getting these green flags, but I don't know if I can do it. Like it was really fascinating to look back. Um, yeah. Just wow. how scared I was. Do you think that that was because that was a product of a past traumatic, rela- your past traumatic relationships? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think okay. definitely that because I've made some bad choices during NRE or mm-hmm. have allowed NRE to like really, you know, blindfold me against some red flags or to be really complacent or things like that. That, yeah, no, I definitely, I think, have made that association. Mm-hmm. There's also things like intense pursuit or intense withdrawal. And ugh, this is, yeah, that's really interesting. I know, like, I've had. It just like pursuit behaviors is my specific type of, I guess, attachment style of candy. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's and and it's burned me a lot in especially when I was young um, in like my teens and my early 20s. And I don't know, I think that, yeah, you that goes back to family of origin as well. And having a father that left and all of those things, you know, there's so many reasons why you may be a pursuer or a withdrawer. And so, yeah, that's something really difficult to think about and it can burn you over and over again in relationships. Yeah. A lot of this stuff points back to just the basis of why we talk about attachment theory, right? Is often it boils down to we were hurt in this very early attachment relationship and like the trauma and the pain of that influences how we then deal with future hurts or mm-hmm. or even the the notion that there may even be a hurt on the horizon even if it hasn't happened and so that can manifest as that really intense trying to pursue someone or really trying to distance yourself and avoid and pull away um related to that i've seen a lot of people enter into a new relationship and just have a lot of anxiety or obsessive thoughts, maybe even a paranoia around when is this person going to betray me or when is this person going to hurt me or when is this person inevitably going to disappoint me that can actually be very intrusive and really disruptive to to one's well-being. Yeah. Also excessive apologizing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of especially if in your past relationship, that was something that was constantly asked of you, or you were always told that you were doing the wrong thing. 
um, can can lead to this excessive apologizing, especially when there's nothing to apologize for and the other person isn't asking it and even maybe telling you to stop apologizing, but just that compulsion to keep doing it. Or on the flip side, this kind of defensiveness about everything, especially if in your past relationships or your family, there was kind of that sort of lawyering up, if you will, about if you admit any sort of wrong or apologize, it means you lost. And so that kind of excessive defensiveness and unwillingness to, to give any sort of ground or, or compromise at all, because that is associated with, with losing and saying that you were the one totally in the wrong and they were totally in the right. This is one that I do a lot of conflict avoidance. And that, you know, there's, I think, a time and a place for some conflict avoidance, you know, especially if it's like a tiny little thing in a relationship. But if it's to an excessive amount that you're conflict avoiding so much that you're essentially fawning at your partner and not not bringing up when there's something egregious that is going on just simply to keep the peace because you're worried about what may or may not happen. I think that's when it gets into territory that is not good for the relationship. Yeah, I had a partner in the past where the first time in the relationship we ran into any conflict, like the first time it was like, oh, we need to sort something out. We need to sit down and and like have a serious talk and try to understand what's going on here. I remember he showed up so anxious and mm-hmm. and just like like extremely, extremely nervous. And it wasn't until much later that I realized or that he told me essentially that pretty much in every other past relationship, as soon as there was the first conflict where it was like, okay, we actually need to talk about something. It was a breakup conversation. Wow. You know? And so it was Mm, just assumed like, oh, we've hit that point. Okay. Now the relationship is going to be over. Um, Yeah. A lot. I think a lot, I think actually a lot of people have experienced that. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon where any kind of serious talk or any kind of sense of, okay, we're actually going to sit down and put our heads together on this is interpreted as something is very terribly wrong. Goodness. Right. Absolutely. Which leads to walking on eggshells and just trying to be so, so careful or assuming that my partner's going to blow up at me for anything, right? There could be different reasons for it, but kind of that being extra careful because anything I do wrong could have dire consequences, either my partner blowing up at me or if we have any conflict, that's going to lead to a breakup. And a lot of that I also blame on kind of this, you know, the cultural narrative that we rant about a lot of just sort of we're shown only NRE in our movies and our books and stuff mm-hmm. and nothing past that. So if anything's not happily ever after, There's that's it. Got to find the next one because this is the wrong one, right? Yeah. There's also it, doing avoidant behaviors like avoiding touch or eye contact or vulnerability, things along that nature. And that can happen, I suppose, with neurodivergence in general, Mm -hmm. but it can also happen due to PTSD or just having a shitty relationship in the past and being like, I I don't know if I feel safe enough to engage in behaviors that feel super vulnerable. Yeah. And I think especially with the touch one, um, you don't even need to have a history of some kind of physically related PTSD necessarily behind this, but I've heard from a lot of folks who've been in relationships in the past where it's like, I touch my partner and they immediately want to escalate it to sex. Mm. And so Mm. because of that, I end up avoiding touch at all of a partner unless I want to have sex. 
And it's very much a binary of either I'm going to touch you because I want to have sex or, or I'm not because there's no in-between. Wow. Yeah. 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 And then feeling like I don't want that pressure to have yes. to do that right now. Yeah. 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 Also, people will do something that I think is somewhat normal, even if it's not always the healthiest thing, but somewhat normal to do very early on when you're first meeting someone is to kind of try to prove how lovable and great you are, you know, kind of playing yourself up a little bit. But that can also become this ongoing thing of kind of like, I have to constantly do extra or overcompensate somehow, or, or even just be extra giving than I actually want to be because I've been taught one way or another that I'm not enough just as I am and that I'm not lovable enough as I am. And so I need to put this on somehow. I need to overcompensate for the fact that I'm just fundamentally lacking. And I think a lot of people have this. Um, and Bell Hooks actually wrote quite a bit about specifically in, in their view, women being really socialized there that like you have to be good, yeah. you have to work for it. You know, you have to demonstrate that you're a good partner and that you offer value, and then you'll be worthy it's that of value, love. That value mm -hmm. thing, because it's yes. like yeah. it, so many men are socialized to find their value in their work and in mm -hmm. how much money mm -hmm. they make. And so it mm -hmm. is that question of what what value does a woman have then? Yeah. What do they have to, to give? Yeah. 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 And, and that, that overcompensating can look different ways based totally. on that socialization, for sure. But it shows up a lot. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of folks, myself included, especially non-monogamous folks or polyamorous folks, sometimes internalizing the sense of it's already such an ask to date me because I'm so inconvenient mm. and I'm so weird. Mm. And so I really need to step up to prove that I'm a really good partner and, yeah. and I can provide all these things. And again, like maybe that's not the worst behavior, but I think it can, it can, it can go overboard, right? Yeah. It can yeah, get absolutely. exhausting and toxic pretty quickly. And then there's many, many other behaviors. But the last one that we have here is sometimes you can internalize a really pessimistic outlook on all relationships or intimate connections. And I think this is quite normal, especially if you're in, let's say, like you've just been rejected or you've just had your heart broken. Totally makes sense why you would go through a period of being like, oh my God, F this. Yeah, like, everyone's relationships are doomed. Anyone yes. who says yeah. they're happy is lying. Yeah, break up with yeah. your totally. boyfriend. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there. I've done. Oh it. yeah, I've I think that. we've all been there. And I, and honestly, I, I don't think that that's the worst thing. I do think though that when it starts to extend, and mm. you really start to internalize it, and that becomes your more fixed worldview that eh, anyone that I date, it's always going to be doomed. Or sometimes this can end up being projected onto particular types of people. So the one that I think gets floated around a lot is all men are trash and like this mm. is how it's always going to be i'm always going to have a terrible experience dating men for instance um right so that that happens a lot too so what about looking at some ways this can show up uniquely in non-monogamy right so we've been talking about these things that are kind of general and within polyamory or non-monogamy there there's also this I guess, kind of shared experience of almost this community-wide trauma, whether that's a lowercase or uppercase T can depend. Um, but on so many people having this history of either bad non-monogamous relationships when they're starting out or people in certain communities being really dishonest and trying to take advantage of this non-monogamous community as an easy way to get sex without having to care about 
anyone in this or using something like the concepts of relationship anarchy as a way to justify really shitty behavior. There's lots of ways this can show up and, you know, can, can almost lead to both an individual, but also almost this shared sense of lack of trust in other people or uh, sort of an excessive need to to punish people for any sort of violation or, or different things like this. We're going to talk a little bit about some ways that can show up uniquely in non-monogamy. Yeah, well, the reason why I wanted to include this is I started getting complaints from clients. This started probably a couple of years ago. I don't think this phenomenon is that new, but this is when I started noticing it from clients. People who were relatively new to non-monogamy, maybe they were in the process of opening up their relationship or maybe they were single and just starting to explore. And they might run into a roadblock where they're like, oh my gosh, actually I feel kind of jealous or I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around my partner having sex with someone else or I'm kind of wondering about agreements. Like I wonder if this kind of agreement is okay or whatever. And they reach out to a community, usually an online non-monogamous community and end up getting slaughtered, it, you know, digitally, mm, yeah. essentially. The idea that like the community just like jumps all over them, especially when it comes to, oh my God, I'm feeling jealousy and I'm really struggling with this. You know, people being really mean, at least that's what's been reported to me, like really not caring. And I have to have this conversation with clients. I mean, first of all, of course, validating and empathizing because that's really crappy and like a terrible experience to go through, especially for someone who's just wanting support and to not be alone in that particular moment. But I think there is this community wide baggage around oh yeah, when I was opening up my relationship back in the day, like my partner also experienced some jealousy and then used that as, you know, a hammer mm. blow to me to control what I was doing or mm. to make me feel bad about what I was doing or to veto the partner that I was seeing or whatever. And therefore, you know... They're transferring their experience Exactly. It's all like this person. transference and projection. Yeah. And therefore, how dare you come here and say that you're having a hard time with this, you know? And, this happens all over down. the internet, every single corner, right? It's not unique to the non-monogamy community, but it's definitely something that I have witnessed many times. Other people tend to have sort of a strict adherence to a particular format of a relationship, like, you know, non-hierarchical is the only way to go, or parallel polyamory is the only way to go, or relationship anarchy is the best thing to do, and everybody else is less informed or less enlightened or whatever. Yeah, I mean, just like we talked about when we did our Q&A episode with Kate Laurie, that sometimes these past negative experiences can produce a certain rigidity that can be just as rigid as some people, you know, the way that some people cling to monogamy, like really traditional monogamy, that based on a negative past experience, it, it, you, it becomes this kind of obsession with like, oh, it has to be this particular format of non-monogamy. Right, right. The, 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 this is what ended up working for me, so it has to be that way. Mm, yeah. Uh, there's also, with that rigidity, maybe also being hyper-boundaried, too. We're kind of having zero tolerance for anything that makes you even the slightest bit uncomfortable. Um, often, ironically, kind of uh, forcing other people to just deal with their own discomfort and you're not willing to do anything to accommodate them. You know, that, that can be an unhealthy behavior that comes out of it. Um, I also was just having a conversation a couple weeks ago with a friend. So the friend is monogamous. She's been in a monogamous relationship for a long time, but she has a friend who's polyamorous. 
but he's not currently dating anyone. And he's been having a really hard time finding relationships. And he's in L.A. So I know it's not a lack of polyamorous or non-monogamous no, they're people. Here. <laughs> and so we, we kind of just chatted about it a little bit over dinner. But one of the things that I brought up is I'm like, well, it sounds like he's new-ish to this. And he's a single man who's straight, or at least mostly straight. And kind of talking to her a little bit about the kind of collective trauma of guys showing up and trying to take advantage of these communities or trying to be dishonest and that that's something that he's probably especially if he's newer to it and doesn't know you know the code words and how to talk about it quite right and what you know what what, what wording is more acceptable to use that's going to set off some some warning signs for people because of that and i think that that in itself is not a bad thing to have that kind of warning go up because yeah, there are a lot of people trying to take advantage of these communities, but it's also something to, to be aware of and realize that sometimes we can push people away or try to quickly judge them or put them into a certain category just based on that fear or trauma from a past experience. And that leads to the other behavior that I've seen, you know, folks carry into from bad past experiences into current experiences is people creating a very narrow set of speculations for potential partners. So, you know, things like, oh, they have to already be partnered. I'm not going to date someone who doesn't already have a partner, or I'm not going to date someone who doesn't already mm -hmm. identify as non-monogamous, or I'm not going to date someone who's new to non-monogamy. And usually the newness is very hard to quantify right. sometimes. Um, uh, or I can only date someone who also listens to the multi-amory podcast. I am not being cheeky. I have literally heard that one. And while it's very flattering um, and, and I don't <laughs> want to turn away a compliment. Not a requirement. Not a requirement yeah. for sure. Now, those things that I listed, wanting to date someone who's already partnered or who has, who has non-monogamy experience, I don't think it's bad to have those parameters for yourself necessarily when you're starting to date, right? Like, I don't want to tell anybody that you can't have any of those standards or speculations. I just think it is important to examine where it's coming from for you. And if having that standard in place is working, if it's actually effective for you, is it actually helping to protect you from heartbreak and discomfort? Or are you having the same amount of heartbreak and discomfort as you would have if you didn't have that speculation in place. Um, so that that's all individual. And I just invite people to get curious about those things and, and you know, yeah, just investigate where it comes from. So we're going to move on and talk about some research as well as actionable takeaways. But before we do that, we're going to give you some of our sponsors for this week. Talk about those and if you would be so kind to check them out. If you see any that look interesting to you, if you go and use our codes for them, it directly helps out this show, and then we can continue to bring you this content for free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. 
And with Dutch Boy's easy opening, smooth pouring container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. All right, folks, we're back and we're going to look at the research. This is a slightly different focus. This is going to focus a little bit more on PTSD and how that can influence romantic relationships. The reason for that being is that, at least from a clinical and scientific perspective, PTSD is something that I think is more measurable and has been measured versus something more amorphous like baggage or I feel a little hesitant being in this healthy relationship after a bad one. So at least from a perspective of finding what the science has a little bit easier to to focus on PTSD specifically. So the first study we're looking at is called Weathering the Storm? Question mark. The Impact of Trauma on Romantic Relationships. And this was published in Current Opinion in Psychology in 2017. So this was actually a review of recent scientific literature. So as in looking at studies on PTSD and relationships that was published between the years of 2015 and 2017. So that particular two-year period. Um, so generally, most studies conclude that post-traumatic stress symptoms, like the ones we talked before, like uh, you know, flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, having severe reactions, avoidance, depression, the self-destructive behaviors, negative mood, all those things, that those are usually associated with negative relationship outcomes. So they specifically found that post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, which is basically the same as PTSD, but has an earlier onset, that PTSS undermines the perception of relationship quality and increases discord from both partners. Another study found that veterans with PTSD and their spouses report overall lower warmth and greater conflict in particular in their relationship. However, there are other studies that focus on the mere exposure to traumatic events or the experience of trauma-related stressors. And the conclusions from these studies are less consistent, and some even show better relationship outcomes after a traumatic exposure, which I find really interesting. The only thing that I thought of that was maybe similar to that is the fact that I've had maybe more of a coming together during the pandemic with my partner because mm -hmm. it, it is this sort of trauma, you know, giant traumatic event that we're experiencing together. And it's caused us to sort of lean on each other in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have before because of it. So I, I can understand that, even though initially, upon looking at that, it might be like, really? What? The mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. relationship outcomes? Yeah. So the researchers note that most individuals who experience a traumatic event do not develop high levels of post-trauma distress. Whether or not the event becomes PTSD, for example, depends on how the event is interpreted and the subsequent coping strategies of the individual. Yeah, and that's a really interesting observation because in my somatic experiencing training, a thing they keep coming back to is the idea that trauma is not in the event itself. It's what your nervous system does with the event. And especially if, like they're talking about in the study, if your subsequent coping strategies are blocked or inhibited or otherwise interrupted in some way, chances are much higher that it's actually going to become PTSD as opposed um, to a stressful event that we went through and then recovered from. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Brian yeah. talking about that on his yeah. episode. There are also some studies that demonstrate post-traumatic growth, which was associated with positive outcomes for relationships. So 
More researchers found that people's post-traumatic growth was associated with increases in responsiveness toward their partner, essentially showing that they understand their partner and value their opinions or their values and that they care for them. And this was noticed by the partner and ultimately resulted in him or her also experiencing increases in this post-traumatic growth. Yeah, so that's really cool because they did find that often if two people have experienced a traumatic event together and if one of them displays post-traumatic growth, chances are the other person will as well. That it's it's like a little bit of a rising ship or rising tide and ships. Something boats, <laughs> ships boats are moving in an upwards right. trajectory. Tide, tide coming in, both ships go up. I think yes, is the saying. That's the one. Right? Got it. There okay. it is. There cool. It is. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Uh, Another study here, this is a study of army couples specifically, and the researchers here found that that the negative associations that were mentioned earlier in some of the studies we mentioned, the negative association between spouses' perception of their partner's PTSS or PTSD and their marital quality was only significant when they had higher internal attributions about their partner's PTSS. So uh, another way to say that is that um, if they recognized that that post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome was responsible for some of their behavior, they were basically had more positive feelings about the relationship than if they associated those with just my partner's personality is making them be this way. Hmm. So also kind of having an awareness of the impact of trauma can go a long way in terms of the health and, you know, satisfaction and overall happiness in a relationship. So as a result of this, the researchers came to this conclusion that disclosure of the degree of trauma in a relationship can help alleviate some of those potentially negative effects. So basically, good communication, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of go back to what this there show is it's often important. all about. But, you know, being able to communicate that, and that's not always easy with with trauma, but at least being able to express, you know, how this has impacted you and that you have an awareness of it and, and maybe what you're doing about it can go a long way in helping them understand that it's not just your personality or something that's, you know, intrinsically part of you that's, that's influencing the way you behave all the time. So I want to spend some time talking about what are the hallmarks of a good relationship or what are specifically behaviors in a healthy relationship that can actually be off-putting or destabilizing to Mm. someone who is used to bad behavior or used to unhealthy relationships. Now, this can sound totally whack to some people. It sounds totally counterintuitive, but this is really common. So it's not just quite as simple as, oh, I leave a bad relationship and then I get into a healthy relationship and then everything's good. You know, there's a cumulative effect, especially if you've been in an unhealthy relationship for a very long time, especially if an unhealthy relationship was a very formative relationship for you. So let's say one of your first adult relationships, or maybe you've been with this person since you were a teenager all the way up through your 20s or longer, and it's been a not great relationship. And now this is your first time experiencing any other type of relationship that just assuming that, oh, because you were with a healthy person who treats you really good, everything's going to be fine is not necessarily the case. I remember yeah. having a relationship with Jace like in my, what, 22, I think. And it was after being... Gosh, gosh you were babies. Really? 
Gosh, yeah. I was 22 when oh I started dating you. Yeah. And babies. you were like 27, 28, I guess then? Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, I guess so. Jeez. Yeah, yeah I was a mere little child baby. But um, <laughs> yeah, I know that I talked to Jace about this because there were so many relationships that I had the, in college and in high school that had been super toxic and shitty. And I had expected kind of just intrinsically Jace to act the same way. And when he didn't, I was like, oh, what? Like, that's not how just everybody acts. And yeah, you sort of taught me in a lot of ways that that wasn't how every dude was going to be to me, which was great. Thank you for that. <laughs> Healing power wow. of Jace. Gosh. There you go. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, yeah, let's let's get into some of these examples of of these otherwise healthy behaviors that can feel uncomfortable when you're not used to them. Uh, the first one that we have here is that it can be really hard to receive honesty or direct communication without thinking there must be some ulterior mm. motive. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. There's got to be an agenda behind this sharing. It can't just be genuine or, or honest. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Another one is that a partner may want to tackle a conflict head on. And that might be just be simply terrifying. I mean, Dedeker kind of pointed that out earlier yeah, with the person say. yeah, yeah, yeah. who said that every single time a partner wanted to discuss conflict, it meant that like the relationship was ending. So, yeah, that might be extremely terrifying if you just are used to conflict being super negative and super painful yeah. or relationship ending, for instance. Yeah, definitely. Or or if, you know, you're used to conflict is always a horrible, negative, uncomfortable experience. You know, I always yeah. get yelled mm-hmm. at or insulted or the person slams the door and runs away. That that would definitely lead you to behaviors that make you avoid that at all costs. Yeah. Right. Right. And and to even see someone else wanting to address something as being unhealthy. Because it's like, oh, they want to do that thing that I've seen is so bad. Totally. Not, not realizing that there could be a different way to do it. In my SE training, I just learned about this phenomenon that people are studying that the scientists call relaxation-induced panic. And even more upsetting, it's shortened to RIP. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> RIP. And in a nutshell, this is the idea that you get into a state of relaxation and the message from your nervous system could be hey, the last time we were this relaxed, something really horrible happened. So Mm. we can't relax. Or maybe reaching this point of relaxation can be a trigger of, oh my God, something horrible is about to happen. And this can happen in a small scale, on a large scale. This could be as simple, I think, for a lot of people as like not being able to relax after they're done with work. Or it could be not being able to relax Mm. in a relationship, not being able to really sink into, oh, wow, this is a really nice, secure attachment with a really loyal partner who's really kind to me without feeling like, oh, God, something terrible is going to happen or they're about to hurt me or they're about to betray me. So that this can be a phenomenon that if somewhere in your history there was that message encoded of, oh, my God, if you let your guard down, something really bad is going to happen, it can just become even harder to let your guard down around somebody. Gosh, yeah. I, that also reminds me of a, a friend of mine from college who had some pretty significant PTSD where for him, if he was reading a book, in reading the book, he would get super nauseous enough to go run and throw up. Wow. And eventually, you know, saw a psychologist for it, thankfully. And it was that 
because if his PTSD was tied to having to be hypervigilant about danger of being killed at any moment, that for him, it was getting too focused on something that his brain would panic and be like, you're not paying enough attention to your surroundings. So I'm going to make you sick so you stop doing this thing. And so just sort of another variation on a similar idea of like your body identifies a certain state as dangerous. And so that's going to be a problem for you. You may worry that kind gestures or gifts might be seen as bargaining chips that'll be brought up later. Kind of a tit for tat, like, well, I did this thing for you. I, I know my mom actually used to talk about the fact that my father would constantly say to her like, oh, that watch that I got you or that thing that I got you didn't, don't you, yeah, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you wearing that? Don't you love that? Don't you Mm -hmm. love that I did this for you? And she would fucking hate it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I've gotten that one a lot with, I know I had a a number of formative relationships where money that was spent on me or spent on a gift or spent on a meal or whatever was used as a bargaining chip later or was thrown into my face later. And Still to this day, I think I've gotten better at it, but still to this day, like if someone Money wants to hard. buy me a more expensive gift mm. or treat me to a more expensive night out, like I'm just like, Ugh, like still feel really, really nervous about doing that, especially if I don't well, know someone very well quite yet. Right. It's like, yeah, what am I going to have to pay for this later? Right. Totally. That, there must be this ulterior motive. I think that's a theme that comes with a lot of these. Yeah. yeah. Uh, going along with that is things like someone making a request can be interpreted as this is a demand. You know, this is not negotiable. Uh, And again, that one I think makes sense if you think about if I had someone who, you know, would express things as a request, but if I didn't do it, I would suffer consequences because of it. Um, That, you know, it's going to make you not trust someone's request to just be a plain request that you could say no to if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For some people... A relationship where there's a lack of conflict or lack of drama can be seen as boring or uninspiring, or maybe this isn't the right relationship for me, or maybe it's not meant to be. You know, I mean, that's a classic one. Um, I listened to an episode of Help Me Be Me not too long ago, where the host talked about how sometimes when you're in a very unhealthy or very toxic relationship, it can take up your entire world view where all you care about is like, is this person being good to me today or am I on their bad side today? And the whole point is about me trying to be on their good side. And it almost like makes your whole life like this very, very simple video game, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like it's just about, am I winning or am I losing right now? And it takes up a lot of your energy. And then when that's not there, not only can it be destabilizing of, oh my God, this thing that I was focusing on is gone. But then it can almost feel like you're a little bit purposeless or it can feel like, oh, my God, now I have to focus on the rest of my life. And that can be a little scary if Mm. I've been spending so much time just focusing on making this person happy. And then I have to focus on making myself happy. And that can really throw people for a loop. Dedeker talked about this one before a bit, but if there isn't 100% instant, intense physical chemistry and affection like fireworks constantly, maybe that means that this relationship has no future. So Dedeker put a quote from an article by Danny Moorbach from Birdie, written in 2022, 
uh, called What People Don't Know About Love After a Toxic Relationship. And the quote says, because Maxton and I had such a peaceful relationship, I worried that we didn't have passion. What I didn't realize was that passion doesn't equal chaos. The adrenaline spikes from arguing may feel intense, but the only fire they fuel is drama, not love. The passion I was really looking for comes from trust, affection, and attraction. All things Maxton and I already had. Yeah, whenever people use the word passion, it always makes me a little nervous. I I had someone, I had a colleague many, many, many years ago, and this person, first of all, they freaking loved... Um, they, gosh, they're not called soap operas anymore, but they're just but like dramas now. I was thinking, I'm thinking like the OC, where it's not a soap opera, oh, but it's a lot of mm, still that same like kind that. of like, yeah, really, you okay. know, it's like soap operas for our generation. Soap opera light, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. She was really, really into that, and she was also in the process of dating and like trying to find a partner. And she talked a lot about she really wanted like a very passionate relationship, and she was very specific about how what that means is. There's Mm. a lot of chemistry and a lot of romance and also very intense fights at the same time. And just realizing and thinking about how our media so romanticizes that all the time, like the number of times in rom-coms I've seen that pairing of like the romantic passion is so intense and they hate each other sometimes and are really (laughs) terrible, but we love that. That's all part of the passion, right? And I'm just like, no. It's very like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, like... Yeah, well, I mean, they're I so hot yeah. for each other. We're trying to kill each other. That was that was when the Notebook turned me off. Is that when they're establishing their relationship? They they talk about the fact. That, oh yeah, they freaking like fought like cats and dogs all the time. And I'm just like, I don't. I'm not. I'm not horny not for this for anymore. These <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is just red flag central. Yeah. Need to get out of there. Nothing about this is romantic. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. So, all right. With all of this, are there any actionable takeaways? Can you know, how can we communicate all of this to a partner and also change our expectations and learn to adjust how we show up in a relationship? It's a challenge. It can be for sure. First of all, being patient with yourself, trust the process. That's potentially the first thing to do. Give yourself some grace because as, as with many, many habits that are maybe not serving us, it can take time to really break them and change that narrative within ourselves internally. I love this next one. Take note of how you speak to yourself and adopt a gentler voice. Oh boy. I think that's yeah, just a good note for everyone in general. Just for oh, everyone. Yeah. I, I know it's a whole cliche floating around there. Are there but... people out there who are just like really nice to themselves in general? If you are, will you please like say so on yeah, give, give us a sample <laughs> yeah, of how you talk to yourself. Yeah, like maybe that. on yeah. Facebook or on the Discord and just tell us like, yeah, this is how I talk to myself and it's really wonderful. I'm sure you <laughs> I'm sure you're really happy. I think the classic example that people give is is that whatever it is that your parents said to you or your caregiver said to you, that becomes Ooh. your inner voice. I've and heard that um definitely true in my personal experience uh-huh. but i think if you've come from some toxic relationships sometimes that also what your partner has said mm. to you or about you can become your inner voice as well and just important to examine that and be aware of that and sometimes it's hard to control those things but there is you know there is work that you can do to proactively change that and change the narratives and change the voices that go through your head and that talk to you Another thing you can do is find your own strength and individuality. Do things that you enjoy and that make you come alive. 
I love that. It that's that goes hand in hand, I think, with personal autonomy and you know, doing things that really make you happy and trying to find things that that just brighten your day and that you can work on individually that don't necessarily equal you needing to do this thing within a relationship, but that mm. really enables right. you to kind of like come out of your shell and enjoy life in the way that you want to. Yeah. Additionally, you can enlist the help of a trusted friend or professional to take stock of what happened in your past relationship. And I think that this can involve not only having someone help you take stock and sit down and take inventory of what happened, what are the ways that someone treated me poorly, what was the behavior that I really shouldn't have accepted, but I did, but also taking ownership of your own part in it as well, your own behavior, your own negative habits. Now, this doesn't mean like, especially if you're abused, this doesn't mean like, oh, we need a victim blame or, oh, you're the one who equally contributed to it. But it is really helpful to look at what was going on inside me that meant that I tolerated that behavior for as long as I did, or that I sought out this relationship, or that I missed this particular red flag. And there's no judgment to that. It's 100% in the service of helping you to get a better deal the next time around and to protect yourself the next time around. Also, something to keep in mind, and Emily said this at the top of this section, and I'm just going to say it again, and that's that it's okay to go slow. Right, go slow when opening your heart up again. Often there is this, oh, I just got out of this bad thing. I'm going to go find a good one right away. And even if you did, maybe you're not quite ready for that yet, or you're just going to need time. So if you're in a relationship already, communicating that. And if you're not, just giving yourself that freedom and that time, right? That, that there's healing that has to go along with also building healthier relationships, that there's also a healing part of it. And that takes a little bit. Yeah, I know it's all cliche for people to be like, oh, I'm going to take a break to work on myself first before jumping into a relationship. But there's value to that. Also a good thing Mm -hmm. that you can have a therapist for. And one thing that I wanted to make sure that we hit when talking about working with a therapist or a counselor or a friend or whatever, it can be really, really good to have someone who can help give you a reality check. So let's say you've left an unhealthy relationship, you're in a much healthier relationship, It can be helpful to have someone that you can text or call up to say, hey, my partner said this thing and I had a really negative reaction to it is, was this a bad thing? Like actually, or was this just my trauma brain from this Mm -hmm. past relationship making it sound worse? It can be so helpful to have someone outside of you and your partner and outside of the relationship to help give you that reality check as you're still healing. Yeah. Another thing that can help with that, and maybe this episode can help you put this together but is to make a list of not only red flags for yourself to look out for, but also green flags. You know, what What are some of these good behaviors and healthy behaviors? And, and find a way to write that down so that when you are questioning, you're able to look at that and go, oh, huh, that felt uncomfortable. But I think maybe this is actually a good thing. Or, oh, nope, this looks kind of like this red flag. This is definitely... This isn't just me thinking it. This is here. And I know that's doesn't completely solve the problem because you're still having to interpret each thing that happens. But having a list written down can just help you give give you some anchor points or some buoys to use as a reference to kind of tell where this falls in the red to green flag spectrum, as it were. (laughs) Um, Another one is when something about a partner's words or their behavior throws you off. Ask some questions about it. 
you know, you might jump to this conclusion that, oh, they're, they're doing this because they want this thing, or that's actually a demand, or, you know, many of the things we mentioned before is to ask, right? Just stop and ask those questions before making an assumption about what it means or what their motivation was for saying it. And well, if that's not a safe thing for you to do, then, I mean, that's kind of an answer for you right there. Totally. Right? If, if they react badly to that, especially if they understand you're processing some trauma, then yeah, okay, that's a red flag and you should probably get out of that relationship. And related to what Jace was saying about going slow, we encourage y'all to halt, halt as much as you need when you're healing from something, whether that's out and about and something triggers you or a relationship memory comes up, you know, take a break, take a pause, do what you need to do to help regulate your nervous system. And same thing in relationships, you know, that if you're in conflict and let's say you're typically very conflict avoidant because conflict in your past relationship was very toxic, that it can be a very overwhelming experience, even if your logical brain is like, okay, I know this person's going to treat me better than that. I know that this is going to be a healthier conversation, but your body and your nervous system can still be freaking out. And so it is okay to take a pause, to go take a walk, take a breath, get some water, move around to help move that energy around in your body. We really encourage people to find a time to talk to your current partner or partners ideally not during conflict, if you can help it, about what's happened in the past and how you can work together to help facilitate healing. Of course, when you're ready, you know, you will be the one to suss out when is the appropriate time to have that conversation in your relationship. But like the research found with those army couples that being able to disclose these things does lead to greater understanding and it leads to your partner being able to understand and empathize and be able to help you more in those particular moments when this baggage is coming up or these particular triggers are coming up. Um, I also really love encouraging people to embrace ritual. I, I think it can be really helpful to symbolize or formalize a way to let go of that previous relationship. And that's... Oh, you talked about this. Yeah. Yes. Like, even if you know 100%, I'm over this person, I'm over the relationship, it was bad, I can totally see that, that sometimes... There can be something like a little bit magical. I don't know if like not 100% magical, maybe like 5% magical. I don't know. <laughs> don't pin me down on the amount of magic. But like there can be something that happens, some kind of deeper knowing in your nervous system when you do something symbolic to actually let go of that relationship and close the door on it. That's all I'm going to say. The last thing that I think we want to send people home with is you can practice accepting love and accepting affection and kindness and compassion and worthiness, not just from your partners, but from everyone around you, including yourself. And I say practice because it is a constant practice. Mm. You know, I know Emily was joking about people who do talk to themselves in a kind way. I don't know if you exist necessarily. Like, I think that this is a day-to-day -day <laughs> <a> thing. <laughs> this is a day-to-day -day no. thing that we have to come back to. I, I think our culture really encourages us to not accept these things or to sometimes be a little scared or sometimes downplay when people offer us kindness or compassion. And it's a constant practice to build that muscle for accepting those things and to slowly start to internalize this idea that you are worthy of love and kindness and good behavior. And not only are you worthy of it, you should expect it. It's not like you're lucky to get it. It's this is the mm. bare minimum. And 
I think this is when we start to open up the the really wonderful and truly magical part of relationships, how they can be healing for us. So yeah, higher percentage of magic on that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. So folks, on our Instagram story, we want to hear from you. Um, have you have you ever struggled to accept a good relationship after being in a bad relationship? We want to hear from you. Also, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners on this episode is on the episode discussion channel in our Discord server. Or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Bavanetta. This episode was researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.